Welcome to Practical Christian Living. Prayer moves God to move. And God moves when we pray. When we pray, people's destinies change. I believe that our prayers are powerful, that they are meant to actually have things happen. Today on Practical Christian Living, we continue our message out of James chapter 5 with one of the most encouraging passages on the power of prayer. God wants us to expect Him to move when we pray. He wants us to pray with faith, knowing that He listens and honors our righteous prayer. Here's part two out of James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20, with Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. When we anoint someone with oil, we take a little bit of oil, usually olive oil. Although, Pat Lazovich told me one time he used oil out of a car. I don't know. Couldn't find any other oil, so went and got the dipstick out and got oil. All right. Um, And we put it on their head as a symbol of that anointing of the Holy Spirit. The early church probably didn't do it that way. If the early church anointed with oil for the sick, they probably poured oil on their head. If it was this symbolic anointing with oil of the Holy Spirit when someone was sick and weak and down and tired, then they probably poured it over their head and anointed them. Now, oil was also used medicinally. And when someone was sick, they would go to a doctor and a doctor would anoint them with oil. A doctor would rub oil into the the wounds or over the part of the person that was, you know, had the rash or whatever was going on when um, the man on his way to Jericho was beat up. Remember the good Samaritan took care of his wounds with wine and oil. Why wine? Because it's alcohol. They clean the wounds. So they cleaned out the wounds with wine and then he poured oil over the wine, I mean over the wounds because the oil would be soothing. So there was a soothing quality to the oil. Some believe that he's not talking about the anointing as in symbolic, as in the priests and the prophets and the kings and the the symbolism of the Holy Spirit. But some believe that he's talking about, are you sick? Then go to the elders of the church because they're like spiritual doctors. They're going to anoint you with oil. And that perhaps this was never meant to be an actual anointing, that it was to be maybe an anointing as in symbolic, but they were going to pray for them. They were going to call out to God for them. They were going to strengthen them and it was going to be like a soothing thing. They needed to be soothed. They needed to have their wounds healed and the elders were going to heal their wounds. And I think it's possible. As I read this passage, I know Mark tells us to anoint the sick with oil. As I read this passage, I think it's possible that he is talking about a a spiritual symbolism. I think it's symbolism in one way or another. Others say that this isn't talking about the Holy Spirit at all. It's talking about medicine. That there were no doctors in their day, their day, or they were, they were rare. And so you'd go to the elders of the church and if you were sick, they would anoint you with oil. They would practice medicine. That was going to the emergency room is what they say. Uh, I don't really buy it, by the way. Uh, Luke was a doctor, right? Luke was a physician that traveled with Paul. and He was also a historian who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. So I don't really buy that this is some kind of a medicinal thing and that alone. People want to go there because this fights against their theology. 
Some people say that there are no gifts of healings today, that God doesn't work through miracles anymore. And so this doesn't fit their theology. And so they got to find a way for this to mean something that is, is different than what it says. But reading it in context, it looks like it's saying, anoint them with oil and pray for them. I don't think we can go wrong. Even if this text is talking about an analogy of a doctor using oil and an elder using oil spiritually, even if that's the analogy, we can't go wrong by anointing people with oil. Someone came up to me one time and said, you guys are just all wrong for anointing people with oil. Well, if that's the place that we are the worst off, I have no problem. Then that's going to be pretty good. If we're wrong because we anoint people with oil and pray for them as a symbol of the Holy Spirit moving and working in their lives, and that's not what it meant in James and in Mark, well then, you know what? We're doing pretty good. <laughs> and I think we can, we can handle that. And God can say to us, you guys were doing that all wrong. Sorry, Lord. We're trying to do the best that we could. God knows our weaknesses, right? It does say, now pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So it's in the name of Jesus that you pray over them. John chapter 4, Jesus said, when you pray anything, ask it according to my name and I will do it for you. So it's in the name of the Lord. Um, verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. Again, now this is the second word for sick. It's a less more prominent word. The word for sick above is used a lot. This word's only used four or five times in the Bible. But it, it's not, again, it's a word that has the idea of weakness in it. it. It's not a word that is just used alone. In fact, the four or five times that it's used, it's used one time to refer to physical sickness. And that's it. And so when it says the prayer of faith will save the sick, some say, well, this passage is telling us and the Lord will raise them up, that this passage is telling us that God's going to heal every person who is sick. The faith movement gets a hold, and I'll do it that in quotes, the faith movement, the faith movement, got to get my air quotes right, uh, will say that everybody is, is to be healed. That if you, if you're not healed, then you have sin in your life. If you're not healed, then you don't have enough faith and everybody is to be healed. But there's a problem with that. Paul himself had infirmities. Paul said to the Galatians, you would have given me your eyes if you could have. He talks about the large letters as in the large size of the letter that he writes with. Paul prayed for a thorn in his flesh to be removed, which he called an infirmity, which is the word for sickness. That for an infirmity, a thorn that was in his flesh, he prayed that it would be removed three times and God said no. The fact that people die, Christians die, godly men and women of the past throughout all generations who have been, been used by God in powerful ways. D.L. Moody died. Spurgeon died. Tory died. Oswald Chambers died. F.B. Meyer died. I mean, you can go back at the list of saints that were used in powerful ways by God. They died. So it tells us that not everyone is going to be healed. All of us are going to have, we're going to come to that point that the Lord tarries and doesn't come back for us, where we're going to have a sickness that is going to be our final sickness. It will happen to all of us. Hopefully, it'll be years down the road. But all of us will have that. It will happen. God does heal. And God uses gifts of healing. And for people to deny that God heals, like some do in this passage, well, this isn't talking about sickness at all. It's talking about other things. And God isn't talking about healing. He's talking about lifting people up. Well, he's including all of that. So one side denies that God heals at all. The other side says God heals every time. And as it is so often, there's an Old Testament passage that says that God loves a balanced scale. He's talking about it in the marketplace, but God loves that balance. The truth is somewhere in between. Yes, God does heal. 
God chooses whom he heals. I don't know why. I don't know how. I don't know how he does it. But some he heals. And some he heals ultimately by taking them to be with him. The prayer of faith will save the sick. There does need to be that prayer of faith, that trusting in what God has said. And it will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So here again, they use this passage to say, see, your sins can cause sickness. And I think there's a way in which that's true. There's certainly a way in which sinful behavior can cause illness. Someone who's an alcoholic can have liver problems after years of alcoholism. And so they're sick because of their abuse of alcohol. Their sin of drunkenness has affected them physically and they are sick because of it. So there's certainly a way in which that is true. I think there's also a way in which God disciplines us. The Bible says, have you forgotten that the Bible says that whom he loves, he disciplines? Hebrews tells us that all the discipline of God is grievous because God wants to bring about the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So we could go through difficulties, maybe even sicknesses, that's a discipline from God. The thing about being disciplined by God is, I take it though, when you repent, the discipline's going to go away. That's why if I feel I'm being disciplined, I want to repent as soon as I can. <laughs> I want to get things right with God because I'm, I'm, I'm his son. And if you're, you take care of your own children, you don't discipline your neighbor's kids. I didn't say you didn't want to discipline your neighbor's kids. I said you don't discipline your neighbor's kids. You discipline your own children. So if you're a child of God, then God's going to discipline you. And have you forgot that, Paul's, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews said? Have you forgot it? The Old Testament said that God was going to discipline those whom he, who he loves. And is it possible that there's some sin in our lives and God's getting our attention? Someone once said, you know, before you get somebody's attention, sometimes you've got to hit them in the head with a two-by-four first. Sometimes God's got to hit us in the head with a two-by-four. Gets our attention and then straightens things out. Maybe. Maybe that's, that maybe that's what's happening. So could it be that there are sins that we need to take care of? But it says if he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. It says, uh, confess your trespasses. The King James says, confess your faults. Some have said that this means confess your sins. And this is where the Catholic Church has gotten the idea. This is one of their passages they use anyway to justify their idea of confession. That I would go in, talk to a priest, sit down and confess my sins to them. Because it says here to confess your trespasses. But again, the word is important. And the word isn't the direct word for sin. It really is better translated as faults. Confess your faults to one another. Hey, don't be so prideful that you can't admit that you do things that are wrong. Don't be so prideful that you run around as if you are perfect and you don't have any problems or any struggles in your life. Confess your faults. Confess your transgression passes to one another. Now, that doesn't mean that we go and sit down behind some veil and start telling our sins to each other. In fact, I think it's important to confess your sins to God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God can handle listening to your sins. I don't know that I can. I don't don't want that job. Pastor Chuck used to say, my ears aren't trash cans. (laughs) They aren't there to hear your garbage. Well, God, he takes our sin and he forgives them and he removes them. But that we can talk truly and honestly with one another about who we are and what's going on in our lives. Not necessarily a bunch of details, but who we really are and what's taking place and being honest with one another. Confess your trespasses. 
to one another. Pray for one another that you might be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Remember that this whole thing is about prayer. And he tells us here that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Prayer moves God to move. And God moves when we pray. When we pray, people's destinies change. I believe that our prayers are powerful, that they are meant to actually have things happen. It's popular to say today, well, prayer doesn't really change anything, which I don't know why anybody would want that. I understand the theology of why they say it. Because they believe that God determines everything. They believe that God has predestined everything. And so nothing will change. I can't change anything by praying because they believe that predestination is not connected to God's foreknowledge. I believe that predestination is connected to God's foreknowledge. It says in Romans 8, 29, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Whom he foreknew. Now they'll say that that word foreknew doesn't really mean foreknow. The word really means predetermined. Who he predetermined, he predestined. But that's the same meaning. Are you saying whom he predestined, he predestined? Whom he predetermined, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son? No, whom he foreknew. God knew that you would make a decision to follow him. God knows what's going on in our lives. And God knows he has given us the power of prayer and the effective prayer. What's, a, what's an effective prayer? An effective prayer would be praying in the will of God. It would be calling out to God in his name. An effective prayer would be from a righteous heart. The effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much so that our prayer actually makes a difference. God says, when you're praying, expect me to move. Expect me to do things. Our lives are different because we call out on the name of God because God moves when we pray. And the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man, it accomplishes much. It, it avails much. He says in verses 17 and 18, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. He prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, the only reason for him to tell us this is so that we would know that Elijah wasn't like this incredible saint. Because sometimes we think, I need, to get, I need to get somebody else to pray for me. Somebody who's closer to God. Because when you're closer to God, then you pray, pow, God does it. So I just got to get to the right person. And then I know I'm going to have my prayer answered. Now, Elijah was a man just like us. He had the same struggles we had. It was, it was no different. And he prayed, and God shut up the skies for three and a half years. And he prayed again, and God opened up the skies. And when we pray, our prayers will be answered. God will move. We want him to be effective. We want him to be in the name of the Lord. But God will move. And what a great example there for us in Elijah. A man who did struggle. At one point, he was running from Jezebel. Remember? And he finally stopped. He said, God, just kill me. He had just had a confrontation with 450 prophets of Baal. And now a woman is chasing him. And he says, God, kill me. And God basically said, stop whining. There are 700 of them bowed the knee. They're dead that I've kept back. God was doing more than what Elijah saw, even though Elijah was the premier prophet of his day. And so God uses us and our prayers make a difference. I, I love D.L. Moody. 
God used him in such a powerful way and such a heart and a passion for lost souls. When D.L. Moody, he was at a certain point in his ministry, he was a pastor of a church in uh, Chicago and he felt like he needed to know the Bible better. And at that time, there were some teachers over in England, um, F.B. Meyer and, and G. Campbell Morgan. And he wanted to go sit at their feet. He just wanted to go learn from those guys. Here he is, one of the premier pastors in the United States. And he says, I feel like I don't know the Bible good enough. I want to go take a few months and just study the Bible on my own. Isn't that a great amount of humility, by the way? I, I don't know that a premier pastor in the United States today would say, I, I want to go sit at some people's feet. I want to learn the Bible better. But he did. When he got over there, he was compelled to speak one night. People found out that Deal Moody was there. And he was compelled to speak at a church one night. And he spoke Sunday morning, first of all. And he said, in his own words, it was a typical, normal service. Nothing happened. They invited me back that night to speak. And so I spoke that night. And the Holy Spirit moved. And a bunch of people got saved. And God began to move in an incredible way. That started a revival in England that was the beginning of his revival phase. D.L. Moody was, first of all, a Sunday school teacher. He then became a pastor. In fact, his Sunday school had 1,500 kids in it in Chicago, in the worst neighborhood in Chicago. Abraham Lincoln came to D.L. Moody Sunday School. This is when D.L. Moody was very young, by the way. He was just beginning to get involved in ministry. And Abraham Lincoln came to his Sunday school. As long, Abraham Lincoln said, as long as I don't have to speak. And when Abraham Lincoln came in, D.L. Moody said, um, President Lincoln is here. He's going to share a few words. <laughs> Put him on the spot. And he spoke to the kids uh, that were there. He went on to be a pastor from there at a church in Chicago. And then he stopped being a pastor when his church burned down. And he went into this phase of an evangelist. And he became one of the, the greatest evangelists that there's, there's ever been. 14, 15,000 people came to hear him speak in New York for seven months. 14,000 people every night for seven months. It was at a time when the United States was in this huge kind of, um, well, you know, it was, the, it was the time of the Civil War. It was a time of racism. When he went to Atlanta, Georgia to do his crusade, they had segregated the black people from the white people. He walked in on the first night and said, I'm not doing this crusade. You guys separate them. I'm not doing it. And, and he walked out. And it took a couple of his friends to come along and say, look, this is the way things are here in Georgia. Go back out and preach the gospel. The gospel is what they need to hear. And he actually acquiesced and went back out and preached. And thousands of people came to hear him speak every night in Georgia. I told you I love D.L. Moody, so I'm, I'm going off on it now. Uh, that night he preaches in England. And this incredible thing happens. And he gets invited over to a girl's house who is bedridden. And he sees his name written on a book next to her bed. And he says... What, what's this? And she says, except a couple years ago, I, I heard you speak. This was not his first time to go to England. I heard you speak and I wrote your name down and I've been praying for you every night since. And I've been praying that God would bring an incredible revival to England. The revival that followed was so impressive that later on, Oswald Chambers sat down with that same girl and said, will you write my name down on your book? <laughs> and will you pray for me? D.L. Moody attributed that whole revival in England, which was really the beginning of his crusade activity, attributed to that little girl who prayed for two years and asked God to bring specifically a certain guy, D.L. Moody, to her city and start a revival in her city. Is it just coincidence that D.L. Moody went to that town and that a revival was started in that town in his day because that little bedridden girl prayed? I mean, people could easily say it was coincidence. I don't think it was. I think God moved when that little girl prayed. What else could that little girl give to God? She couldn't go out and do. She was bedridden. But she could call out to God and God heard her prayers. When 
Um, who was the Cory Timbum? When Cory Timbum was older. Cory Timbum was used by God in incredible ways. She, of course, was, was taken into a concentration camp, and her sister, Betsy, was killed in Ravenbrook. When she was older, she went to Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa. And when she could no longer speak because she had become so feeble, she'd gone to Pastor Chuck and said, I just feel useless. And Pastor Chuck said, this is just a new phase in what God's called you to do. Now you can turn into a prayer warrior. And she spoke of that later on, talking about how that renewed her faith and gave her a purpose once again when what she was doing for God was changing radically. Our prayers make a difference. When we call out to God, God moves. And we want to pray in the name of the Lord and we don't need to be an Elijah because Elijah was a man like us. We just need to be men and women who have a right heart with God, who come from a place of our sins being forgiven and therefore can go boldly before the throne of God and call out on the name of God. Now, verses 19 and 20, he finally wraps up the book and he wraps it up by saying, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, this causes a lot of problems for a lot of people, again, in their theology. Calvinism, Reformed theology, would spend a lot of time talking about this verse. Well, it says that, you know, if anyone wanders from the truth, well, you can't really wander from the truth. This is talking about people who haven't really been in the truth. You're really wandering from a sense of the truth, a form of the truth. But it says, if anyone wanders from the truth... I think when it comes to the scriptures, you need to read them at face value. If anyone wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways saves a soul from death and covers a multitude of sins. When, when someone turns from their sin and comes back, it saves a soul from death. Now, it's talking about, first of all, those that wander from the truth, but then talks about those that are just lost, anyone, whether or not you've walked with the Lord before or whether you've, this is the first time that you would know that your soul can be saved. The ultimate work of Jesus was not in working in your life daily now. Yes, he works in your life daily now. He gives you the Holy Spirit. He uses you as salt and light. But the ultimate work in his life was your salvation, was your given eternity that your soul was saved from death. And so Jesus said when the disciples realized that the demonic spirits were, were subject to him, don't rejoice that the demonic spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. We rejoice that your name is written in heaven. We rejoice that we've been saved. And when we do leave this earth, we will go and be in the presence of God. And may we have a strong heart and desire for those who are lost. May we grow in love towards the saints and may we have a passion for those who are perishing. Those in our family, those among our friends, those people that we work with that don't know Jesus. And if I'm looking at this passage, talking to me about saving souls from death, which is obviously the work of God, I'm reading it in context. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. He who turns a sinner from the errors of his ways saves a soul from death so that we call out to God and we begin to pray for them. We look for opportunities to share. We look for open doors and we see people come to Christ. God begins to move and do that ultimate work. Yes, God does heal today. Yes, he gives the Holy Spirit today. But God saves souls and that's the ultimate work that he does. 
Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.